Hello, my name is Ben Ashby. I'm Tom Trawful. And we are the co-hosts of the Future Proofing Finance podcast on behalf of the CFA. We dig deep into the latest innovations and technologies that are disrupting finance in the digital age. And yes, sometimes we do talk about crypto. Today, I am joined by Dominic Endicott, who is a partner with North Star Ventures and author of a forthcoming book on knowledge towns. And we've just wanted to talk about the wider aspects of venture capital, technology investing, and Dominic's theories about how we can revitalize the British economy and indeed other parts of other countries' economies through the use of VC and technology type investing. So with that, I'll hand over. Tom, do you want to start off with the first question? Thanks, Ben. What a great introduction. And I'm super excited to chat to you today, Dominic. I'm going to start with some warm-up questions, if that's okay with you. Fantastic. Um, I noticed Ben took out my mildly humorous ones, so they're a bit more serious. I'm always fascinated to know if you read on Substack or books, your favorite read or what you know what's uh, by your bedside at the moment. Well, I think uh, a book that I'm very keen on is called The New Localism. Uh, it's by two authors from the Brookings Institute, and they really talk about a, a revolution back towards a local control. I mean, effectively, they're giving up a little bit on, on central government. And, and, and this is based in the US, but I think it applies in many other places and really thinking about how locations can come together. So that one's is one that I would highlight. That sounds like a fantastic uh, read. I'm quite keen on understanding the mixture and needs for globalization and localization. Next question, piece of advice that you received that keeps giving. The best idea is, is one that says at any point in time, sort of regardless of, of where you're at and whether you're healthy or sick or whatever, um, the best thing to do is to sort of find uh, the intersection of you know, what you're good at, what you like doing, and what society needs. And you could kind of call that purpose. And if you kind of sit back and sort of think, what's the answer to that question? Um, it actually gives you kind of a place to go to at any point in time. And, and, and to me, that has always been very useful. Getting deep and we're only in question two. Um, the next question is a bit lighter. Um, have you bought any crypto? And if so, why? Or if not, why? I've not. My challenge is that I don't really understand the, the purpose of it and how it's solving a key problem. And I sort of think about the amount of energy that could be put into solving real issues. Uh, you know, we have um, major issues around things like education, wellness, you know, real assets, uh, the price of housing is out of control. And so I would rather put my energy into those kinds of problems. And, and I think it would cause a distraction for me. Yeah, cool. I think now that we've got the warm-up questions out of the way, Ben, I'll uh, hand over you for some of the serious questions. Yeah, we have a lot of discussions internally, Dominic, about uh, crypto and uh, blockchain, and uh, I'm not the biggest fan and haven't been uh, particularly supportive. So I would be very much with you that I think there are bigger problems, and I always struggle with certain, some elements of it about actually what was the real use case for it. If I could add, having said that, I think that the role of decentralized finance in, in one area of great interest, which is sort of real estate, I find very appealing. So I'd love to find an application for things like the blockchain to aggregate um, interest in, in an area. As an example, I've long thought it'd be very cool to get people together uh, cumulatively to sort of put their assets together and then bid to work with the town to remake that town. 
And, and it could be that these tools would be useful for that. So I don't want to sound completely skeptical. No, I'm going to jump in there because I'm the crypto, uh, I'm more pro crypto. Uh, it's always good to have someone a little different. Um, and I find the real estate conundrum a fascinating one. I've heard many times talked about things like uh, owning, you know, ha- having the, using the ledger of the blockchain for ownership and, and, and partial ownership and stuff. I do find it solves many problems neatly and creates many more. But the most, the biggest thing is it, it goes through, you know, a lot of industries and people making money and, you know, therefore you're displacing people. So the difficulty seems high, but uh, interesting. Maybe, uh, maybe we can get onto some of your questions, Ben, but uh, fascinating that that's the part that you're focused on. But Dominic, could you tell us about your background and how you got started into the VC industry and what you're up to now? So my first career was in management consulting, uh, starting at Boston Consulting Group. Then a bunch of us started our own consulting firm in the telecom space back when telecom was a growth industry, which it's been a while since then. Uh, and we built a, a very nice business, grew to about 100 million. We sold it, same team, started a venture capital firm. In both cases, I was the US part of that um, firm. Uh, and so I, I got sort of started that way. I've been now doing venture capital for about 16, 17 years. Um, I'd say in the last three years, I have sort of refocused, while I still love venture capital, um, I think it has a big purpose around uh, regional regeneration. I think that nobody has really thought of it as a tool to help kickstart a local economy. And I, I think that's where it's going. Uh, and, and there's a huge opportunity. And, and venture is still a nascent industry. In terms of assets and the management, it's maybe two trillion out of 150 trillion uh, globally in, in total financial assets. So I think it can grow to 10 trillion, you know, 15, 20 trillion. Uh, but in particular, to do it in 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 service of of kind of regional growth. How did you make the transition? I mean, going from consultancy, was it because you saw a gap in the market, or you could see that the industry was shifting, or it's just was it following your passion, as they always say? When I was in consulting. I was frustrated because I'd give this advice to large companies and the probability that that actually turned into a real world change was quite low. And also the fact that you were kind of far away from it, so you couldn't really influence it that much. And my idea in getting into venture capital is that I would be closer to the action. I'm still not the entrepreneur where the center of the action is, but I'm at least one step removed on the board of a company. Um, and uh, I think that's borne out to be true. I mean, there are some frustrations with venture, but you are a lot closer to the action, especially if you come in quite early and you can, you can say, I mean, as an example, the first company I ever invested in, it's a company called Great Call, which ended up um, getting acquired by Best Buy for 800 million. And I was literally, my group was the first investor in that company. It's possible if we hadn't invested that that company would have never made it to its size. I think it employs over a thousand people. So sort of feeling that you actually have an ability to sort of make a small dent in the universe is, is really exciting. And I still like that aspect of, of venture capital. I think there are things about it that are not perfect, but in an imperfect world, it, it's actually a great form of capitalism. So can I ask about your uh, views on revitalizing parts of the uh, economy and, and certainly regions? My understanding is when you look at, certainly as an outsider looking into Silicon Valley, it seems very, very clubby that you've got this entire ecosystem that spent the best part of 50, 60 years growing up. And there's a lot of insiders that know each other. And that's kind of how a lot of the deals get financed. And it's it seems to be rare that anything particularly good comes out of it, you know, if you're not inside of that circle. And my experience in the UK is, uh, again, 
with the Cambridge cluster, which seems to have some of that ecosystem. But again, it seems to have this insider ring uh, in a general sense of term rather than the financial markets. But they see the best deals. They finance a lot of that stuff. So how do you see it grow in these areas? And how do you, you know, how do you replicate that ecosystem? How long does it take and what needs to be there? I mean, I think what you say is is true. And I think historically, venture has been very concentrated and very clubby. And within the UK, it's extremely concentrated in, in London and, and, and then maybe a little bit Cambridge and now Oxford and so on. So it ha- that, that is all true. Um, it is changing. Um, so that there are now somewhere in the order of 200 regions in the world that are all sort of competing to be in the venture capital space. So it's really decentralized at a global level. Um, one interesting metric, if you look at unicorns, which is sort of companies valued at over a billion dollars, which is an imperfect measure, but it's a useful measure nevertheless. You know, 10 years ago, there were maybe 10 cities in the world that had at least one unicorn. And I think at latest count, there's 160 cities in the world that have at least one unicorn, right? So that's an indication of how much this ecosystem is, is decentralizing. I sort of give you an analogy, right? The Industrial Revolution initially was very concentrated in certain pockets of the UK. Um, and then it sort of started to spread throughout the UK, and then it started to spread around the world, and it has been a transformative um, revolution on a global basis. You can think about effectively the, the knowledge and venture capital revolution as in the early innings of that same transformation. And, and, and a useful metric is if you think about the UK writ large, my, my math would, would suggest that in the last decade, roughly 150 billion of venture capital has gone into, into startups, and that's created about close to a billion in dollars of value. So this is the value of the companies and, and probably uh, at least two trillion of wealth in the UK, which might be about a third of all wealth creation in the last decade has come from venture capital or as an originator, right? Now the problem, so that's the good news, right? The, the bad news is that's heavily concentrated in London and, and sort of the South, which kind of didn't need it as much. And it hasn't really happened in the rest of the country. But my belief is in the next decade, what you're going to see is still a lot of it going into London, but a whole new wave now going across the rest of the UK. And that's a really big opportunity for wealth creation, uh, as well as sort of the dynamism that comes from, from, from new economic models. So let me just jump in there, if you don't mind. Just trying to understand what you mean by spreading around. Do you mean sources of VC? So where where on the, if you put a pin in a map where the VCs are or where the businesses that are creating this wealth are based? Both. I mean, you, you need VCs on the ground with money to invest, in particular in the early stages. Uh, and they have to be on location for things to happen. But also you need companies in, in the regions. And if you look at the distribution of VC money in the UK, yes, it's around 90% is in London. And so, and most of the VC individuals are in London, and consequently, that tends to reinforce that the place. If you want to start a company in England, you, you kind of want to be in London, or at least within sort of close range of that. As you start to move the money around, then the entrepreneurs can sort of cluster around that money. You have to do some things to sort of accelerate some of that. So, you you know, university spinouts is a very good element of that because. Uh, there's a ton of knowledge sitting in universities that you can kind of spin out into companies. But you also have to do other things to attract talent to say, hey, you know, if I'm moving to England to start up my company or to scale up my company, instead of moving to London, maybe I move to Newcastle. Uh, so convince entrepreneurs that are coming into the UK because that's what they want to do 
maybe actually it's cheaper to live in Newcastle than in London. Maybe, you know, the CEO can be in London, but the rest of the company doesn't have to be, right? So sort of, sort of starting to rethink what has happened, which is all everybody basically clustering in one place. So the clustering in one place, though, that has to do with the basic economic theory that um, when we look at GDP and growth, which is that, you know, innovation comes through density. And I guess, you know, part of that's changed through COVID. I've done a little work, I mean, uh, on VC data sets and looked at the success of founders. Um, some of the most obvious findings are, you know, co-founders are good, exited founders are good. Have you found any interesting, uh, or how do you go about uh, choosing your investments? And uh, what what are some of the more surprising uh, traits that you've found useful to help guide you? I'm not saying, you know, they make your decisions for you, but that, that help guide you. I'd say a couple. One is having a strong sort of team of a, of a salesy type founder and a technically oriented founder becomes really the core of a startup, right? With that combination, you've got that, that foundation. It's very hard if somebody, if you just have like a salesy person without that strong technical person and certainly the other way around, right? So that's a, to me, a key combination. So I think the, the two co-founder model works for me. I also like people that have been in sort of the real world before startup and try to solve a problem or be, been either part of a, of a sort of growth team that's been solving a problem or being in an industry where they're frustrated by something that's not working and leaving to start a company to solve that problem. But they kind of know it intimately. And to me, that's been sort of the most successful model is people that have an intimate knowledge of a certain domain, start a company and have a good technical person and a good commercial person. With those foundations, you've got a basis to do something. Um, just to pick up on the clustering point, I think the theory is, is, is one that's on the challenge. If you sort of think about the, the clustering of the last hundred years was based on the, on the notion of the office and that all the value is being created in the office and therefore people had to sort of commute an hour a day to come to the office and you know the water cooler and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think as essentially the economy is moving more and more online to sort of the metaverse or to you know the cyber world or whatever you want to call it, the question as to where value is created is being challenged. And so you, you have some very successful multi-billion dollar startups that some of whom were started entirely you know, online and never with an office. Uh, and one interesting sign is, for example, Andreessen Horowitz went from a very office-centric model. So they're the number one venture firm in the world. They used to be all about the office. They've effectively blown up their office. They're now setting up a decentralized network of offices around the US. And I think they're going to do the same thing globally. And so they're sort of recognizing that where the, the puck is moving, as it were, is towards this more decentralized model. And I think that is tied to where value is created and, and sort of the new economics of agglomeration. Thanks for that. Can we just bring you back to your new book uh, about knowledge towns? And you've, you've mentioned the need for a local VC with local knowledge, but you've mentioned universities a few times. So I was just wondering, would you be able to kind of explain um, how you see things? What's your sort of recipe for success in a local area? Yeah, so the thesis of knowledge towns, it, it sort of rhymes with college towns, which people might note, um, but it's a little bit different. And sort of the idea is, uh, in, in America in particular, there's um, you know, something like 4,000 colleges and universities. Because of the history of the country, many of them were started kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was sort of part of the model. Um, and therefore, they're in small towns. Uh, many of those universities are now under challenge. 
for all sorts of reasons, in part because the, the cost of what they're doing has gone up a lot and the value has gone down a lot. Um, and and uh, part of the thinking is in the new zeitgeist of the sort of post-COVID remote world uh, uh, you know, idea, it would be possible to build a kind of a cluster, an economic cluster, almost anywhere. And the places where the university are particularly well positioned to do that because you have a concentration of, of brains and some research. There's probably some ideas that can be spun out. Often you see companies that start to place themselves close to universities. So you probably have kind of also a distribution of a few companies. And if you mix it all together, you can actually turn a place that could otherwise just basically go down over the next 10 years or so, you can actually re reinvent it. And the idea is to sort of think about it and come up with some new models. Thanks for that. Could you talk us through your new venture? So you, you're planning to set up a, a very much regionally focused uh, in the Northeast. Why did you pick there? What universities are involved? Where you're targeting? And can I just say, as somebody who's married to a Geordie, she's very happy with that whole concept. Yeah, it's a fantastic uh, part of the world. And obviously has a great history when you go back to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, the, the Northeast was, was central to that, as are many other areas of the, of the UK that have been, in a sense, abandoned. Uh, in the last sort of couple of decades, there's been a lot of concentration in, in London and, and the South, and the North has been sort of disenfranchised. Um, there has been a phenomenon, I'd say, that's been going on for, for the last decade or so of university-sponsored venture funds. And Cambridge did that probably one of the earliest and has now built a thriving ecosystem. About seven years ago, Oxford did the same thing and they started a fund. This has been amazingly successful. I mean, it, you know, Oxford in a sense, didn't need this because it was already a very successful place, but it has really put it on the map. And, and uh, the, the amount of venture capital per year going into the Oxford area has gone up by a factor of five or 10 in the last seven years, really largely as a result of this university-sponsored fund. So that idea is starting to stick, not only in generating a nice return for the investors, but also in, in, in having a critical role in the region. So as that's happened, you've now seen this expand. So uh, there's a new fund called Northern Gritstone in the Manchester area. We're setting up in the Northeast one called Venture North. This is in partnership with the universities of the region, which include Newcastle, Durham, Northumbria, uh, Sunderland, Teesside. We're also in discussions with York. So the idea is, is there's a ton of really interesting research that could be turned into companies. And we've actually been working with them in, in that process. We've got about 250 projects ready to be funded, but it needs capital to sort of see these companies, get them to a certain point. And, and at some point, they're mature enough that we can attract money from London or from New York, from, from other places. This is a critical role for a venture fund that's dedicated to the region, to the universities, and, and to areas uh, where there's growth markets. So we're typically looking at life sciences, new materials, artificial intelligence, all the cool stuff. Um, and, and we're not the only one, right? So I think you're going to see over the next five years, a bunch more funds being set up around universities. And I think as this phenomenon spreads, people are going to start to connect the dots and say, wait a minute, this could be great for the universities, but actually a critical element of growth for a region. Can I jump in there? Because um, I'm quite interested in the concept of incubators. And what you're saying strikes a chord with me in terms of how a lot of the incubators, well, some of them start anyway. Is there are these areas with incubators or do you want to explain the idea of incubators? And then I've got a question on, about uh, the lessons you've learned through your investment uh, career, if that's okay. So you can think about a series of layers. So if you think about the university, but it could also be 
an institute or, or a company that's doing some R&D or work. There's sort of an R&D layer. Then you can think about the accelerator uh, as a layer above that, which is taking that R&D and translating it into a business proposition. So for example, we form part of something called the Northern Accelerator. And the job of the Northern Accelerator is to sort of spin out ideas into companies. Often it's to pair up an academic with a business person uh, so that they, they start to sort of think about things like markets because sometimes the idea is a little bit too academic. So you need to sort of balance that out. So, so uh, and I would say um, accelerators, incubators, all of that are great. We should have more of them. For us as a venture firm, they're, they're feeders, right? We, we want you know, the maximum number of those because they will feed into the venture capital process. But oftentimes people stop there. They say, hey, I've got an accelerator, that's good enough. But if you don't have that venture capital, and it has to be a critical mass, ideally about 100 million pounds per region, um, to invest in, in those companies. And, and often, you know, nothing ever goes to plan in venture, right? So often you have to say, hey, I'll, I'll give this company a little bit of money and then I'll give it some more and then some more and I'll have to bridge it. And at some point it will be mature enough that maybe other investors are coming in. But if you give up too early, a lot of the incubation stuff effectively doesn't end up anywhere. Um, and, and, and that's what's sort of missing and that's what the venture capital layer is really bringing. Perhaps to you know, just just to look at what you're saying from a different lens, because I 100% agree with you. Um, you. If you don't create a pot of money at the end of the rainbow, you know where are people going? I mean, you start them off; they get excited by doing something for themselves and by themselves. But you know, we all know MVP is great, but to scale a business costs money. I mean, in general, <laughs> there are plenty that you know have been able to do it for free or cheap. If I could pick up on that, um, I think one of the questions in the pre-read is around the power law because people read the book the power law, and you realize, okay, well, this is, venture capital is all about the billion dollar companies, so the really big ones, because they're at the top of the power law. And, and therein lies that challenge, right? That realistically, most people are not going to be the CEO of a billion pound or billion dollar company. And therefore, you could spend 10 years of your life in a startup. And if that's the dream you're chasing, you're not likely to get there. And then you could say, well, <laughs> why did I do that? Right? So then you have a lot of disappointment. I believe there's a very interesting part of the market, which I call the sort of the capital efficient uh, leg of the power law, which is sort of the middle part of the market. And the idea is, you know, most years, the, the distribution of exits is really weighted around companies selling for between 50 and 100 million. And, and so if you start a company, you say, what I want to do is I want to build a company that could sell for 50 to 100 million. I don't want to get too diluted. I want to make sure I don't raise too much capital because I raise too much then the VCs are going to want me to build a, a really big company that's unlikely to happen. So I think that's the place, especially in regions, that I don't want to focus on. Sorry for interrupting. That's the point of the podcast, so please do jump in any time. Um, I'm going to actually uh, divert my a question I was going to ask to drill into that a bit more, though. One of our previous guests had talked to the fact that uh, they really liked their check just to be in novelty size in the back of the boardroom, used more as a, you know, if you need this money, you know, call on it. Um, and actually, you can scale your businesses. I mean, the area of speciality there was SaaS. Um, so obviously, again, you know, to my comment on the, the cost of scaling, what's your favorite when someone pitches you and they talk of for the use of the capital that they're raising, uh, you know, um, from you, what's your favorite uh, uh, thoughts from a founder in terms of the, the use? Like, There's an interesting paradox because one of the problems with venture capital is it can make you a little bit um, not lazy. But effectively, if you get lots of venture capital, you don't have to sort of get money from the market. 
And I like companies that are really good at extracting value from the market, right? That can convince companies to, to spend money with them. Because to me, that's a very strong signal. And so paradoxically, you kind of want to give company money to the companies that don't really need the money. <laughs> to, to your point around the, the guy that wanted to sort of put his check up there. And so I, I actually like the idea of saying, you know, I need some venture capital because it's going to help me accelerate, but I'm not going to become dependent on it and it's not going to become a crutch. And I want to bootstrap as much as possible and to some extent have that money as a reserve for contingencies, for unique opportunities, but not necessarily to spend. So there's kind of an interesting thing that when a company raises money, there's, an, there's a pressure to spend it. It comes from the VCs. They're like, hey, I've given you this money. You got to spend it comes from the founder because I can pay myself a nice salary. I can pay more people salaries. I can hire a bunch of people. It's often a mistake. The best thing to do is to sort of use that money very carefully and to focus on how do you generate more revenue out of your clients. For example, with that venture capital, you can now go to your clients and say, hey, you know that deal that we were talking about? I've now got more money in the bank and therefore you can be more sure that we can execute on that really big deal. So that's helping me do a bigger deal rather than going and hiring a whole bunch of people. I think that's a big mistake that a lot of startups do. And, and I think the mistake is, is, is coming as much from the VCs as from the founders themselves. Can I just follow up one of the points? You're obviously trying to raise money at the moment for your new fund. How have you find the traditional investor community? Because obviously VC is a relatively new asset class, certainly in the size that we've, we've seen in the UK. The UK pension system itself is beginning to roll into sort of maturity and all go into fixed income. And we obviously lack a lot of that infrastructure that the Americans have with the endowments and some of the other bodies that they have. How have you found it so far? How have you found that education process? How have you found the mindset? I think it's an interesting time um, because the UK is sitting on one of the top two or three financial systems in the world, right? Probably number two to New York, in, in, in London, 11 trillion of pounds under management. And yet the venture ecosystem is almost independent of the city of London, right? So even though, you know, St. James or, or Mayfair, where most of the venture guys are, is only a couple of tube stops away from the city of London. It's almost like there are different worlds, which is somewhat paradoxical and, and really interesting, right? So as you say, the city of London is really sort of mature oriented around public investments, debt, risk minimization. And you got this sort of interesting, you know, privateer world of, of the VCs. Um, if you look at the VC that's gone into the UK out of 150 billion or so, probably, 90% has come from outside of the UK, right? So the first wave of investments was typically UK-based, but then most of the follow-on money is coming from the Americans and, and others. Uh, you know, and, and funny enough, the city of London, which is sitting right next door to it and should be the one jumping in there, is not doing that. I think that's a massive missed opportunity. I think that's starting to change. And you're seeing uh, funds, for example, like uh, the Catalyst Fund from M&G, is, is really so set up in part to ameliorate that. You're seeing other firms doing similar things. And I think that's a huge opportunity because imagine if a small percentage of that 11 trillion starts to move into VC in the UK and the impact it has on local ecosystems. So if you, if you think about putting a bit of money into uh, say, say Newcastle or the, the region of the Northeast in venture, that has a multiply effect on the land values so you start now investing in wet labs or manufacturing that goes with the VC. That also drives housing. 
And so if you're a city-based investor, you can sort of create a portfolio of investments with a little bit of VC, a little bit of infrastructure, a little bit of real estate, and that will all go up in value. And I think that's a new paradigm that, that is starting to emerge. And there's an opportunity for London to actually be a pioneer in that globally, because it hasn't really been done until now. But on the other hand, if we don't do that, I think there is a risk that over time, London will sort of get left behind both on the VC side, for example, that the French are coming for the crown, right? The French really want to be the tech capital of, of, of Europe and not London. And if they keep going, they could win that. And, and so it'd be a massive miss for, for both the city of London and say the VC community to not come together. I think, Dominic, uh, we have your answer to if we want to make London I'm an Australian, if you can't tell from my beautiful uh, lyrical uh, accent. Um, if you want to make London the centre, you just need to tell the English that the French are coming. That will do it for you. Absolutely. And they are coming. There's an interesting idea called the New Palo Alto. And the idea is, if, if you sort of think about the triangle uh, between London, Paris, and the Netherlands, you probably have two-thirds of venture capital uh, in, in Europe is based in that area. And and actually sort of very similar geographically to the sort of time to get from, say, San Francisco to San Jose in the old Palo Alto, right? So the idea is to say, actually, if we can kind of, kind of create that metaphor, that new Palo Alto could be sort of the European equivalent to the old Palo Alto, which I think is a really interesting idea. But then it raises the question is, where's going to be the center of the new Palo Alto, which, by the way, is also being fought in the old Palo Alto, right, where there's, there's an ongoing battle between San Francisco and the Bay and, and sort of the, the sort of uh, Menlo Park area, uh, kind of the suburbs, as it were, and, and the main city. But I think you could have this sort of battle between London and Paris. And I think it, it's kind of good to get the competitive juices going. But I think the UK system is way, way too passive, right? The French are, are all in and the UK is really sitting on its hands right now. Interesting, you mentioned about the Catalyst Fund. Uh, well, I was chatting to Zach Webb last week. He certainly seemed very positive about the opportunities. And I agree, actually, competition's good. If you look at sort of uh, medieval Italy with all the city-states sort of uh, competing with each other, you saw an enormous boost of innovation, not just in technology, but also in financing. You mentioned earlier on that you can kind of see these opportunities in life sciences and AI and materials. I was just wondering just wider kind of what big opportunities do you see at the moment? What particular areas? And is there anything that you see that's sort of a, a dead end or something that you think a lot of money is being potentially pulled into and you just really don't see it? I know we kicked off early on with elements of the crypto universe, but is there others? I think there's an interesting idea of the sort of the fast industries and the slow industries. And so the sort of fast industries, and this is something that Mark Andreessen talks about as sort of, you know, media and and uh, you know, tech itself, and, and the ones that have sort of adopted digitization pretty fully. And then the slow industries are the ones where uh, you've seen very little progress. So education, housing, infrastructure, healthcare, um, and, and you see the costs of those going up. And so they haven't really benefited from innovation. And, and, and yet they're like half of the world's GDP. So as an example, I really like the idea of infrastructure technology. You know, there, there are sort of all these um, reports saying, you know, we need, you know, $4 trillion a year globally in new infrastructure for global warming and so on, right? Well, um, where is that infrastructure going to originate? And often it will originate in a digital twin, right? You, you, you'll sort of build a virtual reality version of whatever you're thinking about, and you'll do a bunch of iteration. And then at some point, that will jump into building a physical 
construction of, of what you've already sort of created in vir virtual reality. Now, there's very few infrastructure tech funds, if any, in the UK. There's a few in the US, but that feels to me like a field that should be wide open. Similarly in real estate, right? Real estate is the largest asset class in the world, 350 trillion compared to about 150 trillion in financial assets. And yet it's gone down in productivity globally. There's a huge opportunity. You know, the house is, is central to most people's lives, most people's savings. And so there's a big opportunity, but there's very little, there's a little bit of prop tech investment, but not very much relative to the size of the opportunity. So those are the kind of areas where I like, and I think the, the impact of technology can, can be a game changer. Combining digital twins is new kinds of financing models, new ways of, of understanding regulations and, and finding ways to sort of counter those regulations, which are stopping a lot of development. You know, on the other side, again, going to things like crypto and even a little bit the metaverse is they, they sort of feel like technologies um, that are cool, that are sort of looking for problems to solve, but they're not necessarily deriving from problems needing solved and then going and finding technologies to sort of help them. So I'd rather sort of turn it around and say, let's figure out the problem. There's lots of interesting technologies. Let's figure the ones that are appropriate for that rather than sort of coming up with these cool new technologies and trying to figure out what to do with them. I definitely know uh, being uh, the, the most uh, crypto uh, um, bullish uh, on our CFA panel that um, I, you, I think crypto is a hammer looking for a nail more regularly than it's uh, when it's trying to do a good job at other things. I'm interested in the infrastructure technology. Um, it's not a space I know a lot about, uh, but I'm uh, interested if you could dig a little bit deeper and explain that to me because, I mean, are we talking behind the meter energy? Are we talking infrastructure in terms of uh, property and databasing? What what kinds of things? I mean, you 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 kind of said they're new financing models and stuff. I'm, I, would you be able to explain a little bit more what you mean in there? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example from one of our portfolio companies called Advanced Electric Machines. And that's an idea that started off at Newcastle University. Um, they actually build a car engine that doesn't use rare earths and doesn't use a lot of copper and is quite a bit lighter. So it has a whole bunch of environmental benefits because the problem with the car, the electric car engine is it's theoretically very good for the environment. When you look at the supply chain to construct it, it actually puts a lot of pressure on the environment. So this is actually trying to sort of solve that problem. Um, and it, it is using a kind of a new kind of technology to, to do that. It doesn't require sort of the the use of magnets in, in, in the same way. Um, and that sort of spun out of university. We helped fund it. It's now raising a bunch more capital. Um, it's, it's originally sort of in the lab, as it were. Um, but now it's in the process of building its first factory. If it's successful, it'll build more factories. So then it sort of starts to move from kind of the lab to the, the world of, of real assets and, and actually sort of building real things. Uh, we're seeing similar kinds of developments uh, for example, in new new companies that will create uh, ways to create, say, meat in a lab that initially are are in a fairly small lab, but as that scales, you're going to build a quite a large lab. So it's kind of this interesting intersection between sort of the R and D or the lab phase, and then the actual fabrication phase, and we call that the lab to fab transition. And that's particularly useful for an area like the Northeast, where the cost of of say industrial land is a fraction of the cost of London. So I, I looked at some numbers. In London today, you know, an acre of industrial land will cost you close to 10 million pounds. Whereas in the Northeast, maybe it's 200,000 pounds. 
So it doesn't make any sense to build that big fab in London. It makes a lot of sense to build it in the Northeast where it's a lot cheaper and, and also labor is cheaper. Sorry, you had a question. I was just going to say, I, um, I'm really glad that we're solving some of uh, you know, the VC and Europe's big problems here. We've got, uh, we've got how we bring VCs back to London. We just tell them the French are beating them. And then we, uh, we, uh, we just coined a new term. I think it's lab fab. I mean, I think that's fabulous. I mean, it's going to tickle everyone who's, uh, who's ever watched, uh, uh, watched TV, I reckon. Um, I want to move on to a slightly different gear, uh, talking about what you're interested in. And that, thanks for explaining that through the, 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 the experiment, the MVP part of industrialization and exploring new, new technologies is how I'm reading what you're saying. Um, and change gears here into something that, uh, CFAs are probably more um, current with, which is marking portfolios and uh, valuations and stuff like that. Um, would that be something that you would, uh, um, ha how do you go about marking a VC portfolio? There's, uh, that's an interesting question. It's, it's hard because often the value is very much into the future. And so typically the value often ends, ends up being whatever somebody else is willing to value it at. Um, and you don't have those discounted cash flows that a good financial analyst is going to be looking for. Or if you do, you're building them you know, 10, 15 years into the future, you have to make a lot of assumptions and they're very sensitive to those assumptions. So um, you know, that, that is a tricky area. I think that's actually an area where Europe overall is well-placed because I think in, in the States, a company at the similar stage tends to get valued much more highly than in, in Europe historically. And so we've had a bubble, as people know, in 2021 across most categories, including bench capital. I think what you're going to find is as that sort of bubble pops and recedes, that the European portfolios are going to be more solid in many ways than some of the West Coast Silicon Valley portfolios of, of investors. And that's a real opportunity for, for Europe. You know, the last crash, the 2000 crash, because, you know, venture is really a 20-year cycle. So that even though there was sort of the the 2008 crash, the real crash was the 2001. And at that point, that was almost an extinction event for European VC. It, it almost went away. I think this time you will see some resetting, but I think you have a really nice portfolio of more real companies. Um, and that's actually a real opportunity for the, for the European ecosystem to sort of, in a sense, not go away this time and double down and, and continue building companies that are a bit more realistic, less sort of built on flash, but, but valuation is going to be hard. And I think that's a real challenge for people that are used to uh, kind of the public market um, because you don't have the same tools. You will often have to rely on third-party valuations from other investors. You'll have to be looking at sort of metrics that give you a sense of a future uh, indication. For example, in biotech, you often will have no revenue and it's a binary issue, whether it gets sort of FDA approval or not, and that drives the value. Um, even in B2B SaaS, you're often going to be well ahead of the cash flow. Um, so I think that's a hard one to, to solve. But I also say you can't just stay in, in, in the public markets, right? And one of the reasons why the big city firms are getting into private markets is because they're looking down the road, right? I've done a forecast for 2030. And by then, I think the value of tech in the UK will be $3 trillion or more. The London Stock Exchange has sort of been flat at roughly four trillion for the last decade. It probably will stay that way. So it's possible that 
the value of tech will be as much as the value of the London Stock Exchange. So if you're an investor, investment analyst, and you're only in the public markets, you're going to be missing out on, on the private side, which will also be the most dynamic. And just another metric, if you look at the last 40 years, the, the, the U.S. stock market value growth, 80% of that has come from venture-backed companies. So companies that were originally venture-backed have driven 80% of all the value growth in the U.S. And historically, the VCs got out very early. They sort of get out about 5% of the way. Now they're saying, well, wait a minute. If I'm lucky enough to be in a winner, I don't want to get out. I want to keep going. And so all of that that used to be sort of going into the, pri- into the public markets is now going to stay in the hands of the VCs, right? So you can't not play in VC if you want to be in public markets, if that makes any sense. Thanks for that, Dominic. How do you keep up with the current trends in and technology kind of movements in the industry uh, itself? I know you're sort of involved in, in the sector, you're involved with the universities, but is there anything from outsiders that you could recommend to our membership that they might be worth listening to? I listen to about 20 different podcasts Um not, not religiously and not every single one of them, but I sort of, I have a, a kind of a stable of podcasts and then I kind of look at what's coming out each week and, and some I, I listen more often than others, but I think that's really good. But try, I'm trying to be diversified. So I have a few VC podcasts, like the All In is quite good for Silicon Valley. Uh, Stebbings, Harry Stebbings has a good one, a little bit more European, but quite global. Um, so a bunch of VC ones. I also look at ones, for example, Strong Towns is very good on place-based. Uh, micromobility is very good on micromobility. I, I look at other podcasts that maybe give me a more macro. So I think that's really useful. And what's nice about podcasts is you can be walking the dog uh, or trying to go to sleep or whatever. And <laughs> it, can, it can sort of serve many different points in your life or when you're driving a car or in the train. So I like that a lot. I, I use Twitter a lot and LinkedIn as sort of news flashes for kind of new ideas. And then reading, uh, I read probably 10 books a month or so. Um, And the other thing I would say, as as somebody who's just started to write, is actually writing a book is an amazing way, or writing an article is a really good way to think, right? So, because it helps you, it helps you force through all these ideas into sort of answering a question you have. So I'd really encourage people to write. That's the best way to think that I found. I couldn't agree more. I was a sell-side analyst for many years, and I found that not only did it force you to focus your uh, thoughts, but you, once you published something, you were never short of people that pointed out the weaknesses in your arguments as well. Which Absolutely. I mean, I mean, and, and yourself as well, right? Like having written now the first book, I now see all the problems that weren't solved with that book, so I want to write another book because I've, I've seen the limits, but I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't written one book, right? So I, it's really, really good. So I think that's probably all we've got time for this week. But if anybody wanted to get into contact with you, Dominic, what's the best way to do it if they wanted to kind of put money into the Northeast or just discuss about opportunities? So I'm at Dominic at northstarventures.co.uk. So shoot me an email. Thank you very much, Dominic, and all the best. Thanks very much.